You're listening to the weekly message by St. Stephen's Episcopal Church. We are a church that strives to know, love, and serve God as we deepen our faith. We worship online via Zoom and at our House of Worship in Rochester, New York. To learn more, visit us at stephensrochester.org. Well, good morning, folks. Today, I want to invite us to begin a, a series on uh, Paul and, and Paul the Apostle. And I, I have to give you a little bit of uh, background on this. The, the genesis of this thought, this was not something I planned long ago, um, was something that happened in the news this week. Uh, you may have seen early in the week the news of the Russian archbishop who announced to, uh, to the world that uh, in his view, um, the, the Russian war against Ukraine was appropriate and even uh, something that God endorses uh, because the, the evidence uh, that Ukraine was a wayward nation and the evidence of that was that they had allowed gay pride parades. Uh, which uh, showed their unholiness. And, and that really, really concerned me. Uh, but I recognized it as something that we hear an awful lot of. And, uh, and that, that very quickly led me to Paul, uh, who experienced these kinds of statements again and again. In fact, in our scriptures today, uh, there was a battle um, that uh, that was in, in the midst of the church to which he responded, in which he similarly responds to that archbishop in Russia who was so misguided. So I wanted to invite us today on a journey, a journey through which we'll get to know Paul and hear Paul in a new way. Now, why do I think that's important? Well, I, I want to tell you a few things. The, you know, the, the Paul is probably the most influential political philosopher in the United States today. And therefore, he's one of the most important figures in human history. Now, I say that you might not have thought of him that way. But uh, when you think of who the great influences are on our American culture, who helped us figure out how to constitute ourselves, you might think of John Locke or others. Uh, or you, you, you may think today of some great New York Times columnists or, or some Fox News anchor who influences American culture and politics uh, in either good or, or, or negative ways. But I would maintain that Paul far exceeds those. Even though he lived 2,000 years ago, his and his legacy consists only of, of 13 letters that bear his name. Uh, his writings constitute 25% of the New Testament. And his influence, I think, is significant because he addresses the churches uh, that he founded and those he didn't found directly, and he does so in order to help us to understand the significance of Jesus's life. And as a result, he has been historically the go-to person for preachers, Christian preachers, especially in our time uh, for Protestants who make up a fourth of Christians globally. His letters often determine how we we interpret uh, not just his own letters, but the gospels. As you know, we read them through a Pauline lens, and and they and he even it helps determine how we read. Torah and the prophets, we, we tend to read them the way he read them. And, and that's huge because, of course, the Bible's stories and the Bible's language impacts and informs American culture enormously. 
Now, in almost every Bible study that I have led, when we turn to Paul, there's always someone in the group who will share that they don't like Paul. In fact, some will say, I hate Paul. And that may be the emotion that is arising in, in some of you today. We want Paul to say things that affirm our own opinions on how we want to live today. And that's because if Paul says it, well, Scripture says it. And if Scripture is the Word of God, well, then it's the Word of God that says it. So we ask, what does Paul say about the death penalty? What does Paul say about abortion? Was Paul anti-gay? What did he say about paying taxes and, 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 and obeying evil governments like uh, Putin's? Uh, because he wrote one-fourth of the New Testament, we need him to endorse our views and not endorse the views of those whom we see as holding competing views. Now, in my experience, the real Paul is obscured by our own agendas, uh, our competitive interpretations. What he said is enormously important. So, so today we will begin a series on Paul, the apostle, and we're going to focus on who he was. This is probably something you've not had an awful lot of experience with, who he was, a little, a little bit more of a biographical sketch, and, and who he was and what he did so that we have some context as we read his words and can understand more clearly what he actually says about who Jesus is for you and for me. Now, I'm going to give you a real quick summary of his life. I, I wanted to encourage you to do, as one of my, uh, my professors taught me, to, to view Paul's life basically like a Hamilton, uh, you know, the, 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 the play Hamilton. You know, it has two acts, right? Well, there are two, two acts uh, in Paul's lives, really, that, that uh, help us to, to understand him. Um, you know, the, 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 the uh, First thing I would say was was that some of the things that you probably already know. Paul's first name, uh, his original name, he was born to as Saul. Uh, and when we see him on stage, we don't see him at birth. There's nothing about his birth. He he arrives as a as a mature, educated, and as he describes himself, a zealous Pharisee. And, and we see him in the Acts of the Apostles for the first time, hunting blasphemers who were who were uh, uh, who were worshiping this dude Jesus. Um, we then see the story of the Spirit's intervention in his life on the road Damascus, in which Saul then becomes called to be Paul, and that's whom we know. We see a, a, a period of, of about eight years of hyperactivity, which, which uh, we, we see in both his letters and Acts of the Apostles, where, where he has this revolutionary mission, uh, missionary work uh, that, that, that he carries on from Jerusalem all the way to Greece. And he's creating these thriving Christian communities in at least six pagan areas. Now, pagan is the word that I'm going to use, which scripture often uses to describe, you know, use, sometimes uses the word Gentile. In other words, areas that were not Jews. So areas, uh, you know, he, he, he created six churches in this eight, in this eight uh, years uh, in areas that were not uh, populated by large densities of Jews. They were, they were dominated by the Greek culture. And then there's this long period of silence in his life uh, where we don't really 
know much about what he did, but that we understand he had less success as he traveled into other areas. And he spent most of that time simply sustaining and growing those six original churches. And then we see around 49, uh, something happened. Now, there were some disputes that we'll eventually get to that happened uh, when he was working in the churches in the area that we call Syrian Antioch. And uh, and there, there was uh, something that happened called the Jerusalem Council in 49, which settled these disputes. And then he had great success uh, uh, building a church in in an area that was a massive Roman city, one of the most important Roman cities, Ephesus. Uh, And then we know that he founded five other uh, churches as well. So he he founded at least 11 church communities that we know about. In in, in the midst of all these things, we see him repeatedly being arrested, imprisoned, stoned, you know, uh, and, and then we see some of his churches starting to break apart, in particular, the one at Corinth that we're going to talk about today. And then we see that he has a bit of a nervous breakdown during this period. But at the end of this of this act, when the curtain comes down on this act, he's calm. Everything's going to work out. Everything's fine. And then we get to act two. And then we see immediately in 52, uh, the, the arrival of enemies enemies who began an attack on who actually had attacked him earlier, but 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 it but began a, a really ferocious attack on him and his ministry and in all of his churches at Corinth. Uh, and they and they successfully get him arrested and, and he stands there about to receive the death sentence. And Paul gets out of it, of course. Um, but he recognizes he needs to go back to Jerusalem and he 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 gathers this big collection from all of the pagan churches to take to Jerusalem. Uh, and he travels to Jerusalem uh, to settle that dispute. And then uh, in the rest of his, his life, what we see is, is a great trouble. He's arrested in Jerusalem. His enemies succeed in getting him arrested. And then we see four years of him being imprisoned. Uh, and, uh, and then we see him uh, using his Roman citizenship to, uh, to enable his preaching there. And then we see a sea voyage to Rome. And then and then we lose track of him about 56. We don't really know what happened. Tradition holds that he was executed in Rome uh, uh, at about the year 62. But we really don't know any of these things. These are these uh, we sort of lose track of him. So with that, let's get back into our story. We're going to cover just a small portion of it today. Um, and, and as I said to you, Paul you know, was born Saul. He was named after the original Saul, who, as you know, was Israel's first king, uh, who was of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul was of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, Saul the kid grew up in the city of Tarsus, which was a very cosmopolitan city on the southern coast of uh, what you and I would call Turkey today, which is right there on the northeastern corner to Mediter- of the Mediterranean Sea. And as I, I mentioned, he was a, a Roman citizen. Now, we don't know how uh, he became a Roman citizen, but this is a crucial part of our story. He uses his citizenship again and again to get him out of trouble. Um, likely, the, the most likely scenario is uh, that he became uh uh, Roman citizen, uh, you know, generations before his birth, likely due to the Roman general that you guys will be familiar with named Pompey. 
As you know, Pompey is the one who conquered uh, Galilee and Judea and other areas around 65 before the Common Era. And Pompey reportedly enslaved tens of thousands of Jews and, and did what the Romans did. They extracted the intelligentsia from the land and brought in others to, to, to as a form of, of maintaining the peace. And so he enslaved tens of thousands and he took them to Rome. And so they lived in Rome. And, but by Roman law, you weren't a slave for life. Usually you were enslaved for a period like seven years. Uh, and, at the, and, and after that period expired, you were liberated. And one of the traditions that was there in Rome is after you were uh, after you were liberated from slavery, you were given the gift of Rome of Roman citizenship. So that's the likely story about how Paul became a Roman citizen. Now, we don't we don't know. Uh, what we do know is that Paul, what Paul tells us himself, that Paul um, was a zealous Pharisee who persecuted uh, the, the, the early church, the early Christian movement. Now, we, we see this in several places. I'm going to share with you, you know, one uh, you know, that's at the very beginning of our letter uh, to the church at, at Galatia, which was Galatia is a region in Turkey, uh, where he said, you have heard no doubt of my earlier life in Judaism. I was violently persecuting the church of God and was trying to destroy it. And then we see in uh, you know, Luke reporting in his Acts of the Apostles, uh, you know, that Paul ravaged the church by, and imagine this, Paul, uh, rather Saul, entering house after house, dragging off both win, women, men and women, and committing them to prison. And then, uh, and then later on, we have the story in the Acts of the Apostles uh, uh, where we see our own St. Stephen, the, the one who gives us our parish's name, uh, was stoned to death. And Paul stood there at his feet. Uh, and, and we see him, as, as, as Luke reports, uh, and Luke, by the way, is Paul's buddy. He's his traveling companion, his confidant, uh, who's writing the story. He, he, he reports Saul spewing out murderous threats against the disciples and then ultimately getting uh, permission from the high priest to uh, go persecute, harass those in Damascus who belonged to this way of love, uh, authorizing him to take them in Damascus as prisoners uh, in, in bringing them, bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. So that's who Saul was. This was a, a seriously zealous um, Pharisee, a militant Pharisee who saw this early Christian movement as a great threat, as, as blasphemy. And then something happened, as you know, you're familiar with this on the way to Damascus. Now, the part I'm going to talk about now is something that we often call the conversion of St. Paul. I, uh, I, we on January 25th every year have that as one of our holy days. And I, I cringe at when I hear that because what Paul experienced, uh, Paul himself doesn't call a conversion. And I don't think it's proper for us to call it a conversion. You know, a conversion means you, you know, if you have a certain type of, of existence uh, and you turn your back on that and you embrace something new, and better, well, then, you know, that would be, you know, what we would call a conversion. But what Paul experienced uh, was not a conversion. It was a classic call narrative, like we see in, in the, um, you know, in, in Isaiah 6, for example, or the call of Jeremiah, um, 
You know, conversion is when you leave box A to join box B. Our use of the word conversion for Paul, for me, uh, is wrongheaded because Paul, here's the important point, Paul did not convert to a new religion at all. He didn't stop by his own report being a Jew. Uh, he didn't go from Judaism to Christianity. He continued in his Judaism. He, he Instead, Paul said he was called, called by God to share the good news, the gospel. Now, gospel is Paul's word, uh, the bars from Isaiah 40, for what he thought God was up to when God sent Jesus to enter our human situation and deliver us from those things that prevent our reconciliation with God. And, and so Paul said he was not converted, but rather called as a Jew to share this good news, to, to help other Jews in particular initially understand. So we see as he's on his way to Damascus to fulfill this mission of arresting and imprisoning uh, these people who follow Jesus, uh, we see this, this eruption into his life of God. Suddenly a light from heaven encircled him and he fell to the ground. He heard a voice asking him, Saul, Saul, why are you harassing me? And Saul asked, uh, who are you, Lord? And the response was this, I am Jesus, whom you are harassing. Now get up and enter the city. You'll be told what you must do. Now, I won't continue with what happened you know, after that immediately. Uh, you, you know what happened uh, to a certain extent. Um, uh, he, he began his mission. And, and, but, but the important thing is that Saul uh, was transformed. He came, became a new person uh, uh, and he embraced a new name. He saw that, that you know, who, the person who was Saul uh, embraced a new name. He became Paulus. Uh, and, uh, and that signified, um, you know, the embrace, you know, one embracing a new identity, sort of like Jacob was given the name Israel. Saul became Paulus. And Paulus in Latin means, it's an important thing, uh, it means small, tiny, humble in Latin. So the one who was Saul named after the king of the you know, first king of the Jews uh, embraced a new identity and in the new identity, he understood he would have been known to, to the, those who gave him, you know, who, who addressed him, he would be basically being called tiny, tiny. Uh, so very much a, a different identity. Now, what I wanted to, to have you focus on, however, is how Paul understood this interaction, this 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 event that happened by which he was called to this new ministry. Uh, and, and the important point I want to make is that God reveals God. So let's look at what happened here in this in this event. Saul asked, "Who are you?" And then he named the voice. He recognized the voice. He named the voice. Kyrios, Lord, I, you know, in, in, in the word he uses there in the Greek form of, of the Hebrew scriptures, uh, Kyrios, Lord, is the way the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew word for God, Yahweh, was translated. Rather than naming that which must not be named because it was too holy, that you would not name the, you would not say Yahweh's name, you would say Adonai in Hebrew, and Adonai in Hebrew, which means Lord, would be 
translated into the Greek version of the New Testament as as Kyrios, and we translate that further into Lord. So, so Paul, first of all, recognized that who was speaking to him was God, was Yahweh. And then notice that uh, what happened after that was he was he heard a response, and the response was, "I am Jesus. Who are you?" I am Jesus. And so you see Paul making uh, an identity here, sort of, you know, the transitive property, I think it's called, you know, you know, in, in concluding that Jesus is God, you know, for the one to whom he spoke, he recognized was Kyrios, was Adone, was the Lord, was Yahweh. And but yet the one to whom he spoke identified himself as the man Jesus. And therefore, Paul concluded the man Jesus is Adonai, is the Lord. And that is an important point in, in the story that I, I want to emphasize today in Paul's journey, because he reflected on his own call and he saw that God erupted into his life through the spirit and redirected him along a new path. Uh, he, he, he reasoned that, uh, that uh, the, the way that God had had revealed God's self to him was through God's spirit, you know, the word spirit meaning breath, the wind. And, and therefore he concluded that, that revelation is mediated always through the divine spirit. And not only that, he, he, he recognized that Yahweh equipped him and equips us for mission in the same way through this divine spirit. And so uh, this is a very important point that, as we're going to see about how he understood God to work, that, that uh, God in, in, enters into our lives and acts through the agency of the Holy Spirit. So, so let's look at, at something that happened 20 years later. 20 years later, Paul is writing this letter uh, to the church at Corinth. Um, and, uh, and we see in chapter 8 him, him doing something extraordinary. Now, Paul would have been one of a, a good Pharisee, would have every single day and multiple times a day recited the Shema, uh, the, the, the reading from Deuteronomy 6, verse, verse 4, uh, that was, was said, is, is, you know, for the Jews, it was something you always say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. This statement that was so profound uh, that, that shaped uh, Judaism. Um, uh, but what we see is Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 doing something extraordinary. Uh, there is, he takes the Shema and he adds Jesus into it. So he takes the Shema and now he says, there is one God, the Father. All things come from him and we belong to him. And there is one Lord Jesus, the Messiah. All things exist through him and we live through him. So what we see Paul doing is crediting both Yahweh and Jesus with creating. So I want to make sure you understand this. Paul is some, saying something so incredibly radical to those who have been brought up in the Jewish faith. Uh, you know, he's, he's naming the one God who cannot be imaged, who who made the heavens and the earth, and he's including Jesus, the Messiah, within that identity. And so he's saying that there, the two persons are visible to us within the one God. Now, you can imagine why Paul's fellow Jews repeatedly attacked him, beat him, jailed him, for this was heresy to those without eyes to see. And of course, Paul understood 
he could not give them eyes to see. He could not persuade them of what he saw. He said that God that requires God's action in our lives through the spirit, as we'll see shortly. Now, one of the ways he gets this is in this, this letter, Paul reflects not on his own call, but on the calling of the men and women who were in that church at Corinth. He says to them, consider your own call. You were not wise. You were not powerful. You were not of high status. But God chose what is weak in the world for a reason. He gave you a purpose he, to, 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 to shame uh, the, you know, to, 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 to um, God chose what is low and despise the world, things that are not to reduce to nothing, things that are so, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. And so he's talking about their calling and he makes this important, very important point. He says that now, by now, because of your calling, you have been blessed by the Messiah's wisdom and you've tasted the gifts of righteousness. You've tasted the gift of transformed lives. You, you've felt the redemption of your wounds and, sees how, and you see how God now you uses those wounds to remind you of God's presence. But none of that was your own doing. None of that was your own doing. It was God's doing, Paul said, just like in his own calling. And he, and he, he talks about how you were called. He, said, he says, remember, I didn't call you. I mean, I was there to help gather you, but I didn't call you. I didn't dazzle you with my rhetoric or my charisma. No, I'm tiny. I'm not a good preacher. No. And that's not how it works with God. Rather, he says, God displayed God's powers. Your faith is not based on my words, but on God's power. And then he says this remarkable thing. And this is the essential point I want to get to. God has revealed these things to us. How? through the spirit. And he says this, the spirit searches everything, including the depths of God. Who knows a person's depths except their own spirit that lives in them. And in the same way, no one has known the depths of God except God's spirit. God alone is in charge of how we know God and what we learn about God's true nature. This is a very important point, folks. I, for me, it's crucial because I'm one of those people who was confused in my early life. I tried to reason my way to God. I tried to, I, I worked so hard to, to, had to, you know, to see God, to see what others see. And, and, and Paul is saying here, you know, that, that was a futile project, doomed from the beginning because only the spirit can teach us about God. Revelation is the name he gives to it. Revelation by God, not intuition by us. This is an essential point. And Paul is going to come back to this again and again and again. And I, I want to, just as an aside, bring, you know, point out that this point is so important uh, and, and so uh, frightening, frightening to us because it means that we're not in control. It means that we're not the ones who control, uh, uh, you know, who God is or, or who God will be in our life, but rather God chooses in God's freedom uh, to enter into our lives. Now, if it, I, I, as an aside, um, I, I want to, to draw your attention to how much we resist this idea that God, uh, you know, teaches us through revelation exclusively and not through our own reasoning, uh, not through our own acts. 
that we cannot force our way into God's presence. And, and we resist it so much that uh, I've put up there on your screen two translations of Paul's letter to the church at Galatia, chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. And I'm not sure you'll be able to see it, but if you look at the arrows that I have there, I've, I've drawn attention to one translation that's in the New International Version. I'm going to come back to this later. I just want to highlight it now. And the other, through the Common English Bible, I could have equally done the King James Version or the or the uh, New Revised Standard Version or many versions, which have the text that we read to you today, in, in, in which it on the bottom one, it, it talks about you know where Paul is saying that we know a person isn't made righteous by works of the law, but rather through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. How? Through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Whose faithfulness? Jesus's faithfulness. That's what the scripture actually says. That's what the Greek actually says. But we have agendas. We want to make Paul say what we want, you know, what, what works for us. And so you can look in the New International Version. And later on, I'm going to declare that the preferred scripture of the white supremacist Christian church uh, that we have built here in America. Uh, and, and it's preferred because of, of, of several things that it does. It puts words into Paul's mouth that he didn't actually say. And, and one of the things that it says here, as you can see the translation difference, is how are we made right? Just how are we justified? We're justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Whose faith? Our faith. Whose faith? Our faith. We're justified by our faith in Jesus Christ is what, what that mistranslation says. And that mistranslation ends up being crucial to our story uh, by which our church has gone astray in America. We're going to come back to that later. I just want to highlight it now because it pertains to a struggle that Paul will have that I'm about to tell you about. But before we get to that, I just want to bring come back to how profound this understanding of how God is in charge and how God is the one who acts in our lives. And our job is to make ourselves present to God and to and to listen and be attentive. But it's God who does it. And you guys are familiar with uh, how I will usually close any meetings we have. It's something that we call, you know, the grace. And it's actually a benediction that we find at the end of Paul's second epistle to the church at Corinth. Uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all forevermore is the way we say that in, in the Book of Common Prayer. That's how I end every night of prayer with my own family as we gather with Sunday and Sadir uh, and Sajina. Um, and, and so I want to ask you to pause and think about what that word grace means. Folks think that grace means free, but Translating it as free misses the depth of its meaning. And this is a very important thing that Paul points out. So let me give you uh, just a bit of an example to understand what grace means. Our kids, our youngest kids, are children whose lives have been marked by the divorce of their parents. So when they come to us each week, they hunger for time with their mother. They hunger for time to be uh, be with her, for her to be physically and spiritually present to them, to see them, to affirm them, to strengthen them, to bless her with her presence. And, and if you can imagine that, if you can get that, well, then you can understand what the word grace actually means. Grace means the donation of God's self. 
the presence to us of God. Grace means that God gives to us, donates to us. In particular, grace means the donation of God through the imminent presence of God's own son, who we know as the word. And so God responds to our hunger. God responds to our yearning for God's presence through the gift of God's son. God draws near, is present to us, affirms us, teaches us, strengthens us, blesses us with Jesus, the Messiah's presence. So what is grace? Grace is the gift of God's presence to us. And so when we sing that song, Amazing Grace, I invite you to go back and reread the lyrics and substitute amazing presence of God in my life <laughs> and then and, and feel the profundity of what that song is saying in that way. And then, and then our benediction talks of God's love. Well, what is love? We've seen that love is that which drives to the reunion of the separated. So when we speak of the love of God, we are denoting our most profound experience of God's reconciling desire for us. And then we talk about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The actual word there is koinonia, which means fellowship, communion, sharing, participation. So when it talks about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, it's a term that conveys a sense of commonality, of solidarity, of shared participation in each other's lives. So we see here that in Paul's letter, uh, uh, you know, what 500 years later, Christians would name the Holy Spirit. Paul wasn't focusing on, you know, a, a trinity you know, uh, you know, the, uh, tr you know, a doctrine of the Trinity. He wasn't trying to give us, uh, you know, a, a new doctrine, uh, you know, and, and give us an excuse to sit, you know, to have Trinitarian Sunday. No, he's simply describing the way real life is. This is a worldview he's describing. He's focusing on expressing uh, his hope for the people he loved at Corinth. And the prayer he gives them is that we are, ourselves, that they themselves would experience the freely given gift of the Messiah's presence, which just is the manifestation of Yahweh's reconciling desire to be with them, and thereby that they would be nourished through the Spirit by God's covenantal participation in their lives by God's solidarity with them. So when we say the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, we are saying something in a, in a very crisp way that is extraordinarily profound. And it's expressing this essential point that all that, that God does is, is, uh, is through God's own agency. God acts upon us. Uh, we don't act upon God in that way. And so that's uh, something that's real important. Paul then gets to uh, a retrospective understanding of his life. And so we see that in this letter to the church at Philippi, where he talks about, hey, you know, I've, if anybody's going to brag, I'm the one who's got reason to brag. I'm like, I've got all the credentials. You know, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm, uh, you know, I'm a, a um Hebrew of the Hebrews, I am, uh, you know, someone who strictly complies with the law. I'm in an ongoing basis, you know, I I am observing the law. He know he says, uh, so so uh, you know, I'm I'm so faithful that I harass the church. I'm I'm blameless by the by the lenses that the world uses. But he says I, you know, in retrospect, I. I see all of that. And it's like any in the word that's used there. He, you see, you know, our our polite translation calls it uh, um, 
trash heap, but it's actually the word it's uh, where it says, I think of it as sewer trash. He actually says, I think of it as excrement. And I'm saying it politely uh, so that I might gain Christ and be found in him. So in other words, all of those works of the Lord, excuse me, all of those works of the people uh, were not actually the things that were causing him to be in relationship with God. Um, uh, but rather it is this eruption into his life that came from the Holy Spirit that has made all the difference. And, 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 uh, and I, I, I want to point this out. He says that God set him apart from birth and called him through his presence, through his grace. And he revealed all these things. And what did he do? Well, he didn't, he, he you know, Paul didn't immediately talk to any other humans. He didn't get up and go to Jerusalem. No, he went away to Arabia. Now, this isn't Saudi Arabia. Arabia is, is the area that is in the what we would call the Decapolis, north of Jerusalem uh, in south of Antioch. So he went into this area on the King's Highway and uh, he went away there and he then went back to where he'd come from, which was Damascus. And he began his mission. So what do I want to say to you today about this? We have this wonderful story about Paul who teaches us that it is the spirit who uh, acts on God, uh, through, you know, as God in interrupting into our lives, calling us to a new way of living, calling us to this way of love. We are not called to be, as Paul says, self-sufficient. God calls us out of our efforts to be self-sufficient. God calls us out of our self-destructive efforts uh, into new ways. And he equips us and he sends us. And so uh, we eventually are able to look back upon our lives sort of like the addict looking back upon a life of addiction and recognizing that, hey, I couldn't see it when I was in it. I didn't realize I was hurting people. I didn't realize I was hurting myself. I thought I could have you know, given up that life at any moment, but that wasn't true. God has given me the eyes to see and to name my past for what it is. And so my heart erupts in love and adoration and gratitude to the God who taught me that I don't need to be self-sufficient, that God will call me into a new way and provide everything I need to be friends with God and friends with each other. Eyes to see. He gives us that gift so that we can become the gift, the gift of his presence in other people's lives so that we pass it on. So this begins the story. We'll continue with the story of Paul in the coming weeks. Uh, my prayer is that you will be inspired by his example to be attentive to the, what the Spirit is saying in your life and, and, and attentive to the mission that God is providing and directing you to in your life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon, and we hope you're able to join us next week.